From the in-town Jewish Academy in Atlanta, Georgia, I am Rabbi Ari Solish, and this is Knowledge on the Deeper Side. In this podcast, we discuss the most inspiring and stimulating Jewish ideas, ideas that challenge the way you think and feel. To sponsor a class or episode, please visit intownjewishacademy.org slash sponsor. And now, on to the episode. And uh, welcome to Daily Power Parsha, Tuesday, July 26th, 2022. And we're in the middle of the Torah portions of Matos and Masay, Matot Masay. It's a double portion this week, um, double header, double trouble, without the trouble part, and uh, it's action-packed. So we started off by talking about the yesterday, we started off for the discussion, exploration of the Torah portion, talking about the laws of vows and oaths, and specifically vis-a-vis annulment of said vows and oaths. So the general rule is what you say you should you need to keep, with the exception that in certain cases, uh, vows can be annulled. By the way, I forgot I didn't mention this yesterday, but the most classic and famous example of the annulment of vows happens Konidre, right? The beginning of Yom Kippur. We do this. We, we do this every year, right as Yom Kippur begins. We call We annul our vows publicly. We call up three people to stand with Torahs around the Bima. They act as our de facto betin, our mini court of Jewish law. And we all publicly ask to annul our vows. It doesn't mean that you don't, that you don't owe five bucks to your friend that you borrowed for you know some Snapple money. You still owe the money. But it means like vows... Resolutions, things that we may have failed in, we're kind of annulling and resetting things and uh, wiping the slate clean. Then we talked about final battle. God says to Moses, Your final act, your final uh, act of leadership will be leading the people into war against Midian to take revenge for what they did to you. Moses says to the people, Let's take revenge for what they did to, to God. Either way, they move on it right away. They send, they pick, they choose soldiers, 12,000, 1,000 from each tribe. They go out to battle, and they are victorious, uh, incredibly victorious, slewing, slaying, slaying. They kill all five Midianite kings, as well as Balaam, the evil prophet. Back inside, let's jump in for today's reading, reading number two, number chapter 31. All right, so the people, the soldiers came back with all of the spoils of war. Moses, Elazar, the Kohen, and all the princes of the community went out to meet them outside the camp. Okay, they met the soldiers, the 12,000 returning soldiers. Moses became angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds who had returned from the campaign of war. So he became angry with the leaders, the leadership of the army. Moses said to them, did you allow all the females to live? Hold on, we read this yesterday. They killed the men and they took captive the women and the children, and the cattle, etc. They, they took a spoils. So um, Moses asks or accuses the officer of the army with the phone. Did you allow the females to live? They were the same. They were the same ones who were involved with the children of Israel on Balaam's advice to betray the Lord over the incident of Par. What do you mean? How could you let the women live? They were the ones who enticed the men to sin, resulting in a plague among the congregation of the Lord. So now kill every male child and kill every woman who can lie intimately with a man. You shall kill any woman of, uh, of age that 
could be, might have been one of those that participated in the, um, in the temptation, in the acts of immorality amongst the Jewish people, all women of, of, of eligible age shall be killed. And all the young girls who have no experience of intimate relations with a man, you may keep alive for yourselves. And you encamp outside the camp for seven days. In other words, all of the soldiers and the officers and the generals, everyone has to stay outside the camp for seven days. That means outside all, presumably, well, we'll look at Rashi on this. Outside the camp for seven days, whoever killed a person, whoever touched or who t- touched a corpse shall cleanse himself on the third and seventh day, both you and your captives. So there's a, they are rendered um, impure and need to be cleansed on day three and seven. All garments, leather articles, any goat product, it's very specific, and every wooden article shall undergo purification. Lazar the Kohen said to the soldiers returning from battle, so Lazar, who was like, the, we said yesterday, he was the Kohen who was in, overseeing the war, overseeing the fighting. So he said to the soldiers, this is the statute that the Lord commanded Moses. Only the gold, here we go, check this out. By the way, this has to do with koshering items, right? How do you kosher a kitchen, kosher uh, anything? Only the gold, silver, only the gold, the silver, the copper, the iron, the tin, and the lead. So first of all, what can you kosher? Only metal stuff. I mean, and some other stuff, but not, not earthenware vessels, right? So metal stuff, whatever is used in fire, you shall pass through fire, and then it will be clean. How do you kosher something? How do you kosher um, pots and pans and utensils? Whatever was used in fire needs to go through fire once again. It must, however, also be cleansed with sprinkling water. That is the mikvah. Even after you kosher, it's got to be put in the mikvah. And whatever is not used in fire, you shall pass through water. So whatever is not used in fire, whatever doesn't rise to that temperature, so you just have to use either boiling water, if it used boiling water, or just the mikvah, if, it's, uh, if, it, if it was never put into the mikvah. You shall wash your garments on the seventh day and become ritually clean. Afterwards, you may enter the camp. So that is what Elazar the Kohen Gadol, sorry, not the Kohen Gadol, yeah, Elazar the Kohen, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest and the priest that was in charge of the war, that's what he told the soldiers about all the stuff they brought back. Oh, you have a beautiful hammered copper pot, wonderful. You got to kasher it and then dip it in the mikvah. Let's continue. Uh, verse 25, hold on, give me a second here. I feel like... No, let's go, let's go, let's do Rashi's because we're about to get into the tax on the booty. So before we do that, let's read about this, uh, let's read the Rashi's on what we just read. Moses loves the coin went out because they saw the Israelite youths going to going out to grab the spoils. They saw the spoils being divvied up, so they said, Hold on one second, let's let's talk about this. Moses became angry with the officers, Rashi, those appointed over the army. This comes to teach you that when a generation is corrupt. The leaders are held responsible for they have the power to protest. In other words, even though the soldiers were the ones that didn't um, do what they had to do, the, Moses got angry at the officers because if you're in a position of leadership, it's your responsibility. Um, on Balaam's advice, Rashi, right, the, the, the females were the ones that, that were involved with the children of Israel. On Balaam's advice, he said to them, even if you assemble, all the multitudes of the world, you will not be able to overcome them, the Jewish people. Are you more numerous than the Egyptians, who had 600 chosen chariots? 
Come, I will, I will advise you, their God hates immorality, thus entice them to sin with your women, as appears in the chapter of Chelek, Sanhedrin 106a. And the truth is, we had a Rashi about this before. But anyway, Balaam's advice, he was the one that told the Midianites, the Moabites, send the women, the young women, to, to entice the men, the Jewish men, into acts of immorality and into idolatry. They were the same ones, Rashi, that shows that they recognized them saying, oh, this is the one who led so-and-so astray. They actually recognized the women, some of the women. So now kill every male child, every, every woman who can lie intimately with a man, Rashi, capable of sexual intercourse, even though she may never have experienced it. Interesting. So it's of age, not of experience. They passed them all, um, they passed them all in front of the show plate. That means the the golden show plate of the high priest, and the faces of those capable of intercourse turn green. Interesting. Some sort of uh, um, recognition software, apparently. You shall kill. Why is this repeated? In order to make a pause in the text. So says Rabbi Shmuel. For when I read, kill every male child and every woman who can lie to me with a man and all the young girls, I would not know whether to kill them, the women of the first verse, with the males, or allow them to live with the young girls. That is why it says at the end of the verse, you shall kill. It has to bookend it. Kill, kill, because the next verse are the ones that you keep alive. Okay, let's continue outside the camp. This means they should not enter the courtyard of the Mishkan. That's why I said, let's look at Rashi when I was reading it, because outside of the camp, there are three camps. There's the Mishkan, the Levites, and the Israelites. So which camp? So Rashi clarifies they should not enter the courtyard of the Mishkan, but they can be in the other areas. Anyone who killed a person, Rabbi Meir says, Scripture speaks of one who killed with a weapon susceptible to contamination. And it teaches that a vessel defiles a person when it is in contact with the corpse, as if he were actually in contact with the corpse itself. Or I might think, so in other words, if a person, let me just clarify this, if a person is holding a sword, Okay, and I mean, it's brutal, right? And and kills the enemy. So they've never, let's say, they never actually touched, directly touched a dead body. They didn't touch a dead body, but they were holding a sword that touched a dead body. So what's what's the status? So the Torah is telling us that yes, one can become um, uh, impure even without direct contact with a dead, with dead person, even touching something like a weapon that touched the dead corpse. Let's continue. Or, says Rashi, I may think that he becomes contaminated even if he shot an arrow and killed him. May, maybe it even goes wireless, so to speak, right? I shot an arrow, or somebody shoots an arrow. The arrow travels, takes out its intended victim. Now the question is, does the shooter of the arrow who's not in direct contact or not even in indirect contact, are they rendered contaminated or impure because of that? Scripture therefore teaches or who touched a corpse, equating the one who kills with the one who touches. Just as the one who touches contaminated through contact, so is the one who kills contaminated through contact. In other words, even if you kill using a weapon, that's fine, but it has to be in contact, can't be a long distance shot. Next, shall cleanse himself with sprinkling water, as is the law, with others who are defiled through contact with corpses. For even those who believe that Gentile graves do not contaminate an Israelite 
if they are under the same roof as it says, you are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, you are men, and the sages add, only you are called men, so to speak. That doesn't work in English. But the specific word in Hebrew is only used regarding Jews according to one opinion. Admit that Gentiles contaminate through contact and caring for the term men is only in reference to uncleanness caused by being in the same tent, namely under one roof. As it says, this is the law for a man who dies in a tent. Basically, Rashi has explained that there's a dispute in the Talmud regarding the laws of uh, coming in contact with death. And there is one opinion. So we, we know from our previous studies that if a person comes in contact with a corpse, they are impure. And it uh, takes a while to get out of it. It takes about seven days. Um, and an elaborate process to boot. The question is, does that only apply to Jewish corpses or to all corpses? And the answer is all corpses. But there is one opinion that says that if one was not in direct contact with a corpse, rather one was only under the same roof as a corpse, only that's the only time it works, works. In that scenario, only a corpse, a Jewish corpse renders one impure if one is under the same roof. Okay, but that's one opinion, and that's only regarding indirect contact, i.e. under the same roof. But direct contact, Jew or Gentile alike, renders one impure, and thus, in the case of the soldiers, doesn't matter that they were fighting against, obviously, Midianites, not Jewish um, enemies, and they killed them, they are still rendered impure for seven days, the full-on impurity of death, because they came in direct contact. If they were in, if they were not in direct contact, only under the same roof, then now there's a, a debate and a dispute whether or not that works when, when the deceased is not Jewish. But that's a, a very particular case. In the case of the war, they had direct contact, and therefore all the soldiers are presumed to be impure. All right, back inside, that's Rashi. It's a very important Rashi. Um, okay, you and your captives... Not that Gentiles are susceptible to contamination and therefore require, require sprinkling, but just as you are members of the covenant, so to your captives, should they become contaminated after they enter the covenant of God, they require sprinkling. In other words, if they uh, convert to Judaism, they would also require sprinkling, i.e. in accordance with Jewish law. All right, any goat product. This includes articles made from the horns, the hooves, and the bones require purification. All right, Elazar the Kohen. Take a look. Elazar jumps in. Right, we read this. Elazar said, all right, this is the statute that God, God commanded Moses. Rashi addresses, why is Elazar the Kohen telling the law to the people and not Moses himself? Since Moses came to a state of anger, he came to error. For the laws of purging Gentile vessels eluded him. In other words, he forgot the laws of koshering vessels. <laughs> look at that. It's crazy. Right, the laws of purging Gentile vessels. That means basically koshering kitchen items, food items. He forgot it. A similar incident because he got angry. And the message is, when you get angry, you make mistakes. A similar incident happened on the eighth day of the investitures of the Kohanim. We read about this in Torah portion of, uh, what was it? Shmini? Yeah, Torah portion of Shmini. After the passing of Nadav and Aviu. As it says, he, Moses, became angry with Elazar and Itamar for burning one of the offerings. He came to a state of anger, so he came to error. He made a mistake. He was wrong. His brother corrected him, as we read, as we studied extensively back in Leviticus chapter 10. The point is, when, when a person gets angry, even Moses, anger leads to error.
Similarly, in the episode of Now Listen, You Rebels, and Struck the Rock, through anger he came to air. Why did he hit the rock? Because he got upset. Now listen, you rebels. He got upset at the people for asking for water, and so he ended up doing the wrong thing, hitting the rock instead of speaking to the rock. This is all very important Rashi. Probably going to be my takeaway. Shh, don't tell anybody. Um, my takeaway today is probably going to be the, uh, the detriment and devastation of anger. It's not a good thing. Which the Lord commanded Moshe, he ascribed the ruling to his mentor, even though his mentor at that point was not in the state to teach. Only the gold, let's go, even though Moses warned you only about the laws of ritual uncleanness, you must be further warned of the laws concerning the purging of contaminated vessels. That means the koshering of vessels. The word ach only is an exclusive expression, that is to say you are excluded from using vessels even after the purification of contamination by a corpse until they have been purged from absorption of the forbidden flesh of carrion. <laughs> that's, that's very important. It's very important. It was even, even after you've purified the vessels from ritual impurity, they're still not kosher. They have to be kosher. A rabbi said only the gold teaches you that one must remove its rust. Look at that. Before one purges it, you can't kosher it if it's dirty. You've got to take off all the rust and all the other dirt before you kosher a vessel. This is the meaning of ach only. There should be no rust. Only the metal itself in its original form, and that's what you kosher. Only the metal in its pure, clean, original, unblemished, unrusted form. Okay, whatever is used in fire, Rashi, literally the laws of koshering, vessels and kitchens. Whatever is used in fire for cooking anything shall pass through fire. It is purged in the manner it is used. That's the rule of thumb. If it is used in hot water, it must be purged in hot water. In other words, if you used something only with boiling water, then how do you get it kosher? With boiling water. And if it is used for roasting, such as a spit or a grill, it must be made to glow in fire. We call that libun, glow in fire. By the way, there's different ways to do this. One way is, uh, is heating it up to a very high temperature. Let's say you have a self-cleaning oven. Well, that works. That starts glowing inside. Another way is the old famous, uh, favorite rabbinic pastime, which is handling a blowtorch. But by the way, with blowtorches, very dangerous. First of all, you got to use a special surface because not all kitchen surfaces can handle a blowtorch. If you put down a spoon or a fork or a pot or a pan on your counter and start blowtorching it, it might not end well. So it's, you know, using a blowtorch, your mileage may vary and caution is key and king. Uh, but certainly there are different methodologies for koshering vessels, including purging with hot water and purging in fire and purging with blowtorches. All right, let's, uh, let's jump back inside and let's uh, continue. It must, however, also be cleansed with sprinkling water. Rashi, according to its simple meaning, the sprinkling was to cleanse it from contamination by a corpse. He said to them, the vessels require purging to cleanse from the absorption of forbidden food, from the non-kosher food. And sprinkling, they require sprinkling to cleanse them of spiritual uncleanness caused by a corpse. So that's the simple read meaning. There's two elements here. Number one, it's got to be kosher. Number two, it has to be purified from death. Our rabbis, however, I'm adding the word however, our rabbis expounded from here that even to make them fit for use after contamination from, from, from forbidden food, ritual immersion was required for metal utensils. That's the key line. Even after you kosher a vessel, it has to be put in the mikvah. 
Ritual immersion was required for metal utensils. They expanded the words may need that are written here to mean water fit for a menstruant to immerse herself. In other words, the waters of a mikvah. How much is that? 40 saw. Basically, to, when you, well, the truth is when you buy a new item, pot, pan, vessel, fork, spatula, whatever it is, dip it in the mikvah. It's kosher, it hasn't been used, it doesn't matter, dip it in the mikvah. And likewise here, you got uh, utensils from, from a spoils of war, great, mazel tov. Maybe there's some all clad in there, but the bottom line is you got to kosher it, you got to purify it, kosher it, and then dip it in the mikvah to render it fit for use. And whatever is not used in fire, anything which is not used in fire, such as ewers, ewers, I don't know what that is, cups and jugs, all of which are used for cold food and do, did not res, uh, absorb forbidden food. The rule of thumb is, if it's cold, it doesn't cause the actual vessel to absorb any of the, the items, the liquid, the, 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 the solid inside of it. Therefore, it does not require a koshering. You rinse it off, you clean it, and you're good to go. So all of that should be passed through water. He immerses them, and that is sufficient. This refers only to metal utensils. Of course, other earthenware vessels, a little bit more complicated. Let's continue the camp. You may enter the camp. The camp refers to the camp that they were banished from, which is the camp of the Shechina, which is the, uh, the camp of the Mishkan. For one who's defiled by the dead is not banned from the Levite camp or the Israelite camp. It's not like they have to leave you know, the grounds completely. You just can't go to the Mishkan, can't go to the temple where the Shechina, God's presence is. All right, that takes us, that brings us current to verse number 25. So let's uh, hide Rashi for a moment. Don't worry, Rashi, we'll get back to you. Let's go, verse 25. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take account of the plunder of the captive people and animals. Take a final tally. You together with Allah, the Kohen, and the paternal leaders of the community. And you shall divide the plunder equally between the warriors who went out to battle and the entire congregation. This is very important. Divide the plunder equally, because the people that went into battle, they fought. So they surely should get some plunder, but the people that stayed home, they uh, held down the fort. So they also deserve some of the plunder. And you shall levy attacks for the Lord from the soldiers who went out to battle. One soul out of every 500, from the people, from the cattle, from the donkeys, and from the sheep. You shall take from their half and give it to Elazar the Kohen as a gift. To the Lord, from the half belonging to the children of Israel, you shall take one part out of 50 of the people, of the cattle, of the donkeys, of the sheep, and of all the animals. And you shall give them to the Levites, the guardians of the Mishkan of the Lord. One second, is that Mark in? Hey, Mark, welcome. Hi. Good to see you. All right, let's continue. So here we have the discussion about how to divvy up the spoils of war, the war against Midian. Moses and Elazar the Kohen did as the Lord had commanded. Moses, the plunder, which was in addition to the spoils that the army had spoiled, consisted of 675,000 sheep. That's a lot of sheep. 72,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys, as for the people of the women who had no experience of intimate relations with a man, all souls were 32,000. 
The half that was the portion of those who went out to battle, the number of the sheep was 337,500. The tax to the Lord, just to clarify, hold on, I feel like I want to clarify. Basically, God said, divide the spoils of war equally amongst the soldiers and amongst the people that stayed home. How do you divide it? Per person? No. 50-50. Take the total number. I'm going to give you a round number. Let's say 100 kazoos came back. Kazoo, is that a musical instrument? Is that an animal? Whatever. 100 kudu, kudus came back. Okay? Spoils of war. 50 would be divided amongst all the people that stayed home, and 50 would be divided amongst the soldiers that went out to battle. The point is that it was divided 50-50. The first split was those that stayed home, those that went out to battle. Obviously, those that went out to battle were far less, 12,000 out of 600,000. Um, but they got 50% of the spoils because they did the heavy lifting. They went out to battle. Um, let's can They put their lives at risk. Let's jump in. So if you count up, and we did, we counted up all the sheep, cattle, donkeys, and women. So the half that was the portion of those who went out to battle, the number of sheep was 337,500. The tax to the Lord from the sheep, which we said was one in 50. Okay. So the tax was, of the sheep was 675. 675. 36,000 cattle was the 50% that they got, of which the tax Lord was 72, 1 in 50. 30,500 donkeys, that was the total of which the tax Lord, uh, of what they got, um, the 50% of what they received, of which the tax the Lord was 61. 16,000 people, of which the tax the Lord was 32 people. Moses gave the tax, which was a, which was a gift to the Lord, to Allah, so the Kohen, as the Lord had commanded Moses. So he gave the tax that was to God, that was for God. He gave it to the high priest, as God had told him to do. And from the half allotted to the children of Israel, which Moses divided from the men who had gone into the army, the community's half consisted of 337,500 sheep, 36,000 cattle, 30,500 donkeys, and 16,000 people. Moses took one part out of 50 from the half of the children of Israel, the people and the animals, and gave them to the Levites, the guardians of the Lord's sanctuary, as, God's, as God commanded Moses. So the, the one in 50 that he got from, or the, the percentage that he got from the soldiers, he gave to Lazar the Kohen, and the percentage that he got from the people, he gave to the Levites, who were the guardians of God's sanctuary, uh, per God's command. Now the officers appointed over the army's thousands, the commanders of thousands, and the commanders of hundreds, so basically the, uh, the army commanders and officers, they approached Moses. They said to Moses, your servants counted the soldiers who were in our charge. And not one man was missing from us. We just, we just double-checked. We went through all of the paperwork, all of the documentation. We didn't lose anyone, not one soldier. 12,000 went out, 12,000 came back in. And they were just overjoyed. They wanted to bring Moses good news and uh, talk about what to do to thank God. We therefore wish to bring an offering for the Lord. Any man who found a gold article, be it an anklet, a bracelet, a ring, an earring, 
or a body ornament to atone for our souls before the Lord. Let's give that to God. We are so thrilled and thrilled and so stoked that not one soldier lost their lives. We want to bring, all of us want to bring gold, gold items. Give it to God. Moses and Elazar took, uh, the Kohen took all the gold articles from them. The total of the gift of gold which they dedicated to the Lord amounted to 16,750 shekels. 16,750. This was from the commanders of the thousands and the commanders of the hundreds. Now the soldiers had seized spoils for themselves. Moses and Elazar the Kohen took the gold from the commanders of the thousands and hundreds and brought it to the tent of meeting as a remembrance for the, for the children of Israel before the Lord, the commemorance about this incredible, uh, miraculous victory in which uh, the people were just incredibly successful. All right, that takes us to the end of reading number two. We want to jump into reading three today, but let's do some Rashi's. Yes. Quick question. What did they do with all that gold? I don't know. Let's check it out. Let's keep on. We'll check it out. Let's see. Okay. All right. Um, take account of the plunder. Take the tally. Good. We got that. Divide the plunder equally. Half for these, for the warriors, and half for those, the ones who stayed home, the rest of the people. All right. The plunder, which was in addition to the spoil, Rashi, because they were not commanded to levy attacks from the movable objects, but only from the living plunder. Scripture expresses it this way. The plunder which was included in the allocation and the tax which remained over after the spoils of the moved property were plundered by the soldiers for themselves and were therefore not included in the allocation was the following, the number of sheep, etc. In other words, basically the Torah doesn't describe what they did with all of the lamps and all of the pots and pans and all of the furniture. It doesn't talk about that. Because those were spoils of war, the spoils of war. Those the soldiers took, and that was it. What was being divided and also taxed to give a gift to God, the Kohen, the Levite, that's from all of the animals, basically. Living beings. That's what Rashi clarifies right here. So that's what it means the plunder of the living creatures, in addition to the spoil, which was the other stuff that they just kept. Let's continue, Rashi. From the half allotted to the children of Israel, which Moses had divided on behalf of the community, for he took it for them from the men who had gone out to war. He took it for them on behalf of the community. Give me one second. Um, hold on. Yeah, I was wrong. It's not 50. The tax on the soldiers is one out of 500. One five hundredth. The tax of the people is one out of 50. It's an extra zero when it comes to the soldiers. So it's, much, it's a far smaller percentage of what was given as a gift from what the soldiers took home. That makes sense. We want to give them as much as possible. Um, let's continue. All right, they came back to Moses. Okay, I'm seeing that. Um, oh, one second. They came back to Moses and said, there's not one, not one is missing. The Targum renders... Um, which in Aramaic also means missing, as in I would suffer its loss, which the Tiger renders what was missing. All right, it's, it's just proof text. And they were so happy that no one died. 
in battle that they wanted to bring a gift, gold articles, whether it be an anklet, rashi, bangles for the foot, bracelet, bangles for the hand, earring, earrings. <laughs> I guess, you know, once we have it translated as earring, what's, what's Rashi doing? Because the Hebrew says <laughs> something else. The, the Hebrew calls it an agil. What's an agil? Rashi says, nizme aizen, earrings. Okay, well, that's how we know. Body ornament, a form for the female genitalia to atone for their sinful thoughts concerning the Midianite women. Okay? So that was a specific type of body ornament which was um, somehow representative of their sinful thoughts concerning the Midianite women. All right. What, I, what I've got says that was a plate on the area of the womb. Interesting. So kind of like a bikini, I guess. I don't know. That sounds like, uh, but it's, it's interesting. It sounds like something, but, but these are things that, they had, that the soldiers had plundered from the Midianites. It sounds like something that they might have had. It's not, it's not something that they made, right? It's something that they, that, they, that they had taken, that the Midianite, I guess, women had had uh, for whatever reason, and therefore they got it, and they, they got it, and then they were giving it as a, kind of as a gift to atone for the sinful thoughts that they had regarding those very women. So they kind of gave it back, as it were. Um, and then I'm assuming the temple didn't display all these things. It was more of like, let's melt it down and use it for something. Um, let's continue reading number three. Okay, so what was it used for? We don't have Rashi answering that. Yeah, Mark. That's what I was curious about. I mean, was all that gold saved and used later on in the temple I was, uh, for the menorahs? I would assume, I would assume. yeah. I would assume yeah. that it was, it was just used for something. Melt it down. Side, yeah. Melted down and whatever, yeah, something, you know, I, I can't imagine that the Kohanim were going to just, you know, walk around with earrings and, you know, ankle bracelets and, or, or share with the, it, I'm sure it was used for, for temple purposes, and, uh, and that was it. All right, now let's move on to reading number three. Remember, these are two big portions, and it's a double portion this week, so we have a lot of drama. Uh, this, is a, this is a moderately sized reading, and I think we can kind of uh, make some progress here, so let's do this. Umit Narav. This is a very famous episode in the Torah. Very perplexing, and I've explained it many times before, but it's always good to, uh, to review. The descendants of Reuben and God. Now we, we kind of shift gears. It says that Reuben and God had an abundance of livestock. Very numerous. And they saw the land of Jazer, Yazer, and the land of Gilead, and behold, the place was a place for livestock. Let me explain what's going on. This is the end of the 40 years. The Jews are knocking on the door of Israel. They are soon going to go into the land and start fighting battles and conquering land and dividing land. Moses will have passed away before then. That's what's, they're, they're headed quickly down that path. But where are they? They're not yet in Israel. They're on the border. They're on the eastern, northeastern border of Israel. In the plains of Moab. And it's at this point that certain tribes, Reuben and God, namely Reuben and God, see that this area looks like a decent place to settle. Why should we go further? Why should we go into Israel? This is great right here. Let's just, let's just settle. 
You ever have an experience where you're going on vacation and you have a destination in mind and you stop along the way and you say, you know what? Let's vacation here. Who needs to go over there? We got it right here. Now, just so you know, that never happened to me. I'm just saying, but theoretically it could happen, right? Well, what's, what has happened for me is, you know, like you take a long road trip and maybe you're traveling and it's nighttime and you have in mind, okay, we're going to make it to uh, Shreveport, Louisiana. Now you're wondering why did I mention Shreveport? I've driven many times from Atlanta to Texas, to Dallas. So I think Shreveport is along the way. I think. I remember seeing the signs. So imagine you're like, okay, we're going to stop like halfway, a third of the way, three quarters of the way, whatever it is, Shreveport. And then you're getting tired. So you say, you know what? Let's stop right here. I see a hotel. I got my Best Western. No. I have my Hampton Inn, maybe. I have my, um, what else? What are those uh, comfort suites? Holiday Inn. Oh, Holiday Inn Express. Yeah, I've stopped there. Holiday Inn Express. It's like more of a suite business type uh, thing. Very balabatish. You get your place. It's up, 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 up. It looks nice. Okay. It's great. Blue glows for no reason. Various on the signs. Anyway, you know what? Why do we need to go to Shreveport? We got a hotel right here. In completely different terms is what happened here. I'm kidding. And it's similar in a similar way. What happens? The, the destination is Israel. Reuben and God say to, say, say to themselves, why go to Israel? We have everything that we need here. We have, we have land for the livestock, plenty of room. It's fantastic. Let's back, go back inside. Uh, so the descendants of God and the descendants of Reuben came and they spoke to Moses and to Elazar the Kohen and to the princes of the community. Called a bit of a, uh, of a uh, higher level meeting. Saying the following. And they started list, listing the cities. Atarot, Divon, Yazer, Nimra, Cheshbon, El Ale, Shvam, Nevoi, Vain, all these places. I read the Hebrew. All these places. These are the, the, the these are part of the land that the Lord struck down before the congregation of Israel. These places, these cities, <coughs> this land is a land for livestock. It's perfect. If you have a lot of cattle. And guess what? Your servants, meaning themselves, we have livestock. Hello. This is like dreamland. Dreamland? I think it means something else. Anyway, this is like a dream. This is perfect for us. So they said, they petitioned Moses and Elazar and the other princes. They said, if it pleases you, let this land be given to your servants as a heritage. Do not take us across the Jordan. We don't want to go across the river into Israel. We want to stay right here. We're comfortable. Let's settle. Let's settle. We were going to move to. We're going to go from. Uh, we're going to uh, uh, go from New York to Florida to move to Florida. But we stopped on the way in Atlanta. We fell in love. You know what? Let's settle in Atlanta. That's it. Let's move to Atlanta. They said we're going to Israel. But this is a great land right here on the other side of the Jordan, the eastern side of the Jordan, a.k.a. the Transjordan. Let's stay right here. They petition for that land. Now Moses hears this, and as I'm sure everyone is familiar with the story, whether on your own or because we've studied it many times, immediately Moses gets panicked. And he thinks to himself, oh no, oh no, here we go again. 40 years ago, the people, the spies, didn't want to go into the land. 40 years later, just when we thought, finally we're going to go, there's going to be a movement now. Two of the tribes 
are going to say, no, we don't want to go in. We want to stay here. That is going to devastate our people. It's going to devastate God and, and me and, and, and the people, the plagues and decrees. This is going to be terrible. Moses gets triggered. He gets triggered, if I dare say so. Thereupon Moses said to the descendants of God and the descendants of Reuben, he thunders to them, shall your brethren go to war while you stay here? Is that right? Everyone else is going to go conquer the land of Israel and you're going to stay here because it's nice? Why do you, That's point number one. Point number two. Why do you discourage the children of Israel from crossing over to the land which the Lord has given them? Don't... don't don't get it twisted. By you staying here, or even by you stating your intention to stay here, what you're really saying is you don't want to go in. That number one shifts the burden on them, which is not fair. Number two, it could discourage them. It could give them the impression, essentially, that you don't believe that the miracles are going to happen. You don't believe that it'll be successful. And then everyone else will say, so why are we the, the fools? Why are we going in? Hold on. Reuben and God are not going in. They don't have to fight any battles. They don't have to wage any wars. Why are, why are we getting the, 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 the short straw here, the short end of the stick? Like, what's going on? Why are we getting uh, uh, um, the war on us? We don't want to do it either. In other words, Moses says to them, You're going to you are discouraging the people from going in to the promised land. And then he lays into it third point. Not the first time you've done this. This is what your fathers did when I sent them to Kadesh, Barnea, to explore the land, the spies. They went up to the valley of Eshkol. The valley of the Eshkol means the clusters of grapes. And they saw the land and they discouraged the children of Israel from crossing into the land, which the Lord has given them. And you know what happened? Moses does a little history lesson. A little 30-second history. The anger of the Lord flared on that day, and he swore, saying, None of the men from the age of 20 years and over who came out of Egypt will see the land that I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, for they did not follow me wholeheartedly. They will not go into the land. Except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Moses ends his quote, quoting from God, and now he turns back to Reuben and God in his own words. The anger of the Lord flared against Israel, he recounts, and he made them wander the desert for 40 years until the entire generation who had done evil in the eyes of the Lord had died out. That old generation is gone. And now he comes to the big conclusion. Everything has been leading up to this final conclusion. And behold, you... You, Reuben, and God have now risen in place of your fathers as a society of sinful people. Somebody trademark that. The society of sinful people. You are a society of sinful people. To add to the wrathful anger of the Lord against Israel, you're going to make God angry again. If you turn away from following Him, He will leave you in the desert again, and you will destroy this entire people. What? An argument from Moses. How would you even respond to that if you were Reuben and God? Number one, it's not right that you should fight and they, sorry, that you should settle and they should fight. Number two, by doing that, not only is it not fair, you're going to discourage them. 
You're going to dishearten everyone else who will be afraid. Well, what do they know that we don't know? If they're not going in, we're not going in. Forget about it. And then what's going to happen is it's going to be a repeat of the sin of the spies. God is going to get angry. God is going to uh, put forth another decree against not going to the land. And you are ruining Jewish single-handedly, ruining history, Jewish history, world history. You're ruining divine destiny. You are, by asking for this land, you are ruining everything. You're a society of sinful people like your fathers. I mean, gee, what do you say to that? That's like, that's, that's, that's powerful. Powerful. Moses is bitter. He's angry. He's being heartfelt. All of the above. They're, they remain calm and cool. They approached him and said, they approached Moses and said, let's clarify. We will build sheepfolds for our livestock here and cities for our children. In other words, we will settle, get ourselves settled. We will then arm ourselves quickly and go before the children of Israel. We'll go front lines until we have brought them to their place. Our children will reside in the meantime in the fortified cities on account of the inhabitants of the land. In other words, we're going to build secure spaces for our families, leave them behind. They'll be safe in the face of the inhabitants of the land, right? Because, you know, the natives can get restless, uh, as we've seen. So the, the families will be safe. Then, we're, then we will arm ourselves quickly and go to the front lines. We shall not, this is their promise, their pledge. We shall not return to our homes until each of the children of Israel has taken possession of his inheritance. We will not, we will not enjoy our homesteads until everybody enjoys theirs in Israel. For we, will, for we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond. We do not wish to inherit with them on the uh, Israel side of the border of, of, of the Jordan because our inheritance has come to us on the east bank of the Jordan. We feel like this is our destiny to remain right here, the eastern side of the Jordan. What a powerful reading. Let's uh, see what we can do with Rashi's. Okay, we got not a lot of Rashi. Let's do this. Atarot Diban, these were part of the, they were part of the land belonging to Sichon and Og, which were conquered by the Jewish people at that, up until that point. Shall your brethren, so Moses says to them after they petition for, for that land, shall your brethren go to war? This, hey, <laughs> hey is not English. It's the letter hey in Hebrew. Ha-achechem. That leading hey denotes a question, not just a question, it's a um, rhetorical, wondrous question. What, you shall your brothers go out to war and you're going to stay here on your couch? It's an accusatory question. Why do you discourage Rashi? You turn aside and dissuade their hearts from crossing. For they will think that you are afraid to cross because of the war and the strength of the cities of the people. And if you're afraid, they're also going to be, they'll also be afraid. So you're disheartening, you're discouraging everybody. Kadesh Barnea, this was its name. There were two places called Kadesh. One Kadesh Barnea and one Kadesh Amadified. Okay, fine. Let's move on. The Kenizite, Caleb was the stepson of Kenaz, to whom Caleb's mother bore Athniel. Or Asniel. He made them wander. He moved them about from place to place during those 40 years. God moved them around. 
as it as a as in Navanad, a wanderer and an exile. That was the destiny of Cain after killing Abel. God says you will be a wanderer and an exile. Navanad, the land of Nod, land of Nod, was a kid's catalog of clothing that I got randomly into my house for a number of years until I stopped getting that. I don't know why. I guess when you don't put it in order, they eventually stop spending the postage. Back inside. Um, to add lispot, to add for year to year, add your burnt offerings, it denotes addition. You're adding on to God's anger. God is probably still not happy about the 40-year debacle, and now you're going to add to it with, with another 40 years or another, God forbid, who knows what. They said, no, 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 no. No, that's not our intention. We're going to build sheepfolds for our livestock here um, and then and cities for our children, fortified cities. We're going to go to war, and then we'll come back. Um, Rashi says... If you look at the order of the verse, first they talked about the sheep, the livestock, and then their children. Rashi, they were more concerned about their possessions than about their sons and daughters, since they mentioned their livestock before mentioning their children. Moses said to them, ah, 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 no, 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 no. Treat the fundamental as fundamental, and the matter of secondary importance is a matter of secondary importance. First build cities for your children, and afterwards enclosures for your sheep. And that's what we have in verse 24, which we did not read yet. Moses corrects them, talks first about the family and then about the animals. Don't put your possessions before your parenting, before your, um, before your kids, before your family. Make sure priorities are priorities. In the language of Kavi, main thing is to make the main thing the main thing. That's what Rashi says. Treat the fundamental as a fundamental. And what's secondary should remain secondary. Don't twist the two. Don't confuse the two. Um, but Anyway, but they asked for to settle. They asked for that land where they were right at that point for their livestock. Sorry, to set up pens for the livestock and cities, fortified cities for the kids. We will then arm ourselves quickly. We will speedily arm ourselves. As in the booty speeds, the spoil hastens. Let him hurry. Let him hasten. Before the children of Israel, at the at the head of the troops, we will go in front lines because they were mighty warriors. God was. Was, uh, was very strong. Concerning, for concerning God, it says, tearing the arm of his prey together with the head. That's a very strong uh, warrior. Moses, too, explained this to them a second time in the portion of Eladvarim, and I commanded you at that time, saying, pass over armed before your brothers, the children of Israel, all who, are, all who are warriors. And concerning Jericho, Israel, the armed force went ahead of them. These were the tribes of God and Reuben who were fulfilling their condition. In real time, in the book of Joshua, we see that they fulfilled this condition and they did go out front lines. Our children will reside while we are still with our brethren in battle in the fortified cities, which we shall build now. Um, for we will not inherit on the other side of the Jordan beyond on the Western Bank. For inheritance come to us. We have already received it on the Eastern side of the Jordan. Okay, that's it for today. So two, two takeaways. Two takeaways. Takeaway number one. Anger causes us to make many a foolish decision and many a mistake. So even for our own sake, it's not good to become angry. Listen, sometimes we can't help it. We are triggered by something that someone said or did or whatever it is, and we just feel angry. What do I do? I don't know. I mean, count to 10, I guess. But the point is, know this, that when we're in a state of anger... Our heads don't work. By the way, it's not just anger. Fear does the same thing. When we're afraid, can't think straight. Absolutely can't think straight. Um, 
you know, you panic. Suddenly you don't see the door right in front of you because you're panicked. I mean that metaphorically, right? Um, so number one, Moses got angry. He forgot the laws of koshering vessels. So Allah's are had to step in. So don't, let's strive not to be angry. Let's keep our head on our shoulders at all times. And number two, number two, let's always make sure that the priorities are prioritized. Let's make sure that we prioritize the priorities and don't mix things up. Moses says to them, I hear you. Ultimately, we'll see it tomorrow. I hear you with your request for the land. I, you know, if you'll go ahead of your uh, brethren, if you'll go with the tribes in battle and ahead of the tribes, okay, we can, you can leave your wives and your children behind. We can, we can work a deal. But one thing's for sure, always put your kids before your, your cattle, before your possessions. Cattle was, of course, the currency. Put the kids before the currency. Put the family in front of the guilt. Otherwise, we're totally confusing priorities. All right, my friends, that's it for today. Um, tomorrow, we're back on, and we jump into the reading of Masse. We conclude Matot, the first of the two portions, and we jump into um, uh, the next reading. Wednesday is always the bridge day. When you have a double portion on Wednesday, we always finish the one, the first one, and start the second one. That's always the, the day in which the readings are combined um, or bridged all right so that's tomorrow tomorrow night we have torah studies otherwise um pretty typical week as of right now all right any final words or comments or questions pleasure 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 all right we'll see yes if you got a chance give me a call i wanted to ask you something i will i will i I saw that i will give you a call all right awesome all right sandrine and sarah and mark we'll see you soon take care guys Thank you, Rabbi. Pleasure. Bye. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online at IntownJewishAcademy.org and on YouTube at IntownJewishAcademy. New episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. It means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day.